Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning back into this week's episode of the Desi VC. I'm your host Akash Pat, and oh boy, what a week it's been! I've been hearing news from across India about temporary shutdowns. I hope everyone listening is doing fine and are practicing social distancing. Please do so if you already aren't. Now, coming on to this week's episode, I have with me on the show Anoop Jain. Anoop is the managing partner at Aria's Venture Partners, a VC firm which invests in B two B and B two C startups and has presence in Mumbai, Bangalore, and Delhi. Anoop leads their FMCG and retail investments and has over twenty years of experience in building brands across countries and categories. It was a wonderful chat speaking to Anoop and learning more about these industry segments. Let's jump straight into the episode and hear more from him. Anoop, great to have you on the show with me today. How are you, and how have the last three or four months been at Orias Ventures? So, hey Akash, thanks for having me on your Desi VC podcast. I might as well brand it, no? So, what I'm on, <laughs> uh, make it sound a little more exciting. Um, Thank you. Here exactly, uh, yeah, <laughs> and uh, do it like a real, you know, branded podcast something. Uh, yeah, so uh, I think we've all got adjusted uh, to it by now. Um, you know, in the in the startup ecosystem, definitely things have slowed down. Uh, but what it's uh, what it's done is uh, given a lot of time for introspection, retrospection, and uh, forward thinking to both investors as well as startup founders. Or anyone who is wanting to, you know, start up uh, very soon, uh, you know, and they were they had it on the cards. Uh, <clears throat> this kind of, you know, quality time uh, to sort of step back, think through, hey, uh, you know, this has happened, and uh, there is an artificial uh, throttle on either the demand or supply side of things uh, that I absolutely don't have it in, in, in my control. I also have a team. uh to basically carry through it i have consumers to carry through it i have a brand to sort of build uh nevertheless and, and whenever it opens we don't know when it's going to fully open because i don't even know whether there's such a thing as fully open uh we'll just have to get adjusted uh to a new way of working and uh a new way uh and a new consumer who's undoubtedly going to emerge uh from this scenario i think consumers are changed forever um it is not just us as uh as as operators or as investors who could stand behind the companies and our investments and kind of say okay this was a bit of a pause and after the pause everything goes back to normal so a lot of people have been saying about the new normal uh but i don't quite uh i at least don't quite uh, claim to know uh, or have heard what's the definition of that new normal and what is it going to have i don't think it's quite clear as yet uh it is going to emerge we can only uh, think about uh, you know in what ways uh, consumers in our own sort of segments and pieces that we look after uh, what sort of changes have they undergone and how can we refashion our thinking our approach our business models uh, in line uh, to create sustainable powerful uh, businesses uh, you know over the long term uh, i don't think uh, we can ever uh, you know sort of hope to have the memory of all of this erased from our minds even if the vaccine 
uh, let us say, was uh, developed, let's say even tomorrow, I think it would have left enough of an imprint uh, to cause changes to, a, to, uh, to many of our habits. And uh, yeah, so I think that's, that's where my head is at <laughs> on the last, uh, as I reflect over the last uh, sort of 69 days of lockdown over here. It's very interesting times indeed. People often ask me, how's the VC landscape? How are, how are people reacting to the COVID situation? Are people still investing? And I often tell them that, yes, we are investing, but obviously a lot of thesis has changed. The way that people are investing has changed. Check sizes have changed. Of course, the valuations have come down, which you know you can argue and say it's, it's been good and about time, especially here in the Valley. What are you seeing in India? Has anything changed from an investing perspective internally from your end? So we at Arise uh, definitely um, have had a change. Uh, 80% of our portfolio in any case uh, was skewed uh, towards what is called the essentials category, which continued to function uh, because, because our, they, are, they reflect the most basic necessities of our life. So, uh, for example, our, our uh, you know, leading investment, PharmEasy, uh, which is like the Amazon of pharmaceuticals, uh, saw a complete uh, blip in its sales upwards as consumers wanted to avoid, uh, you know, even though the shops were open, uh, avoid going out for their regular uh, medical purchases and uh, wanted to keep a you know, safe distance at home and, and, and conveniently access that market. Similar examples, you know, in other parts of our portfolio, which were positively impacted, Gully Network, we see Beto, which is a healthcare uh, company, saw higher engagement, higher NPS scores, uh, diabetics taking better care of themselves using the entire platform uh, and the sugar monitoring uh, being done much more regularly. And in fact, we saw an improvement of uh, consumers in the platform. So uh, I think uh, uh, the, uh, the, the philosophical change that we at Arise have undergone is we will increasingly uh, uh, continue to look at businesses which are in the online space, which are uh, transforming the unorganized to the organized through digital and through tech, uh, because that's going to win uh, uh, for sure. And there's going to be an increasing pace of adoption uh, given the experience of COVID. I don't think, like I was saying earlier, consumers are not going to look back uh, at this period as a as a pause, they're going to look at this place as a transition and they will transition into greater digital adoption in every part of life that they can bring to themselves uh, uh, to access uh, through the phone. And uh, that's, that's basically the areas where we will continue to invest in. Uh, we'll also look at online to offline businesses where again, the access is through online. We will uh, look at businesses which are SaaS businesses which support these verticals. We will look at some of the sectors, which uh, I think globally there is a move to, uh, towards health tech. So we will continue to move uh, much uh, more into health tech uh, into the future. Education uh, is a gap for us. We will continue to look for smart teams which can solve uh, big problems. And I know that in India, uh, irrespective of which socioeconomic bracket that you belong to, uh, every parent wants to give their child uh, a passport to a better life through education. And uh, we've seen that play out in China as well. We've seen them uh, playing out in different economies, uh, in all emerging markets in the world, and certainly so in India. And uh, the government is not going to be able to 
uh, fashion, uh, given its multiple priorities, uh, a movement towards digital learning and be able to create uh, and sponsor some of the development of these solutions. I think some of our brilliant founding teams and entrepreneurs who have anyway had a passion about education and even came from, uh, you know, tier two, tier three towns and places which uh, desperately want education, but they want the access at a low cost uh, will make the sort of high tech available to millions of, uh, you know, aspiring students uh, in a way that they can afford it and they can, uh, you know, uh, access education. Uh, in this new and changed scenario, which I doubt is going to, you know, go back uh, to normal that soon. So we're going to have uh, to wait before we see, you know, uh, crowded classrooms. I mean, how are you going to implement social distancing in a crowded classroom? So uh, I can see that these are some other sectors. Even gaming, for example, is a sector which has gone up along with OTT uh, as a form of entertainment. And, uh, you know, you're not going out that often. It is unlikely that we will spring out and be back in the restaurants if they were to open up tomorrow. Even if there was, you know, implementation of social distancing measures, etc. There is uh, a healthcare system uh, that we have to look uh, look up to or uh, or look at uh, before we make those uh, kind of decisions and take those kind of risks in our lives. So I think uh, uh, pretty much we are going to be covering off uh, these kind of sectors and SaaS businesses which support these sectors. And that's the philosophical change that has uh, gone on. We will therefore uh, not look at, you know, uh, with the same level of uh, excitement, certain sectors which require discretionary spending, which has taken a bit of a hit because we feel that will continue. So sectors such as fashion and apparel, um, you know, sectors which are uh, like travel or real estate driven, uh, you know, think stuff like co-living, co-working, etc., wasn't in our portfolio. And, uh, you know, we, we often used to discuss it, uh, but I think uh, we've been better off uh, not looking uh, at these portfolios. We haven't also looked at, uh, you know, restaurant brands. Uh, we evaluated quite a few. My own background is from, you know, Pizza Hut. Uh, and uh, uh, we looked at uh, many such concepts, but we felt that, you know, uh, the returns would be challenging. And post-COVID, I think, uh, well, uh, it, isn't a, it isn't a good hunting ground uh, uh, over the next two years. I guess in some way, the pandemic has advanced conversations internally from a thesis construction standpoint. And many investors today are looking at sectors that were top of mind, but at least a couple of years away, be that, you know, gaming, education, remote collaboration tools, etc. So I guess you guys are pretty much on the same lines as well, right? Yeah, so I think work tech is definitely going to come up. Uh, and I've, you know, posted, uh, you know, I think a couple of weeks ago, et cetera, about how work from home is going to take off. And, it, and, and you know, it just the, the currency on that is, is kind of increasing that this is kind of permanent. And this is going to cause a lot of changes, even for many players who used to serve us when we were at office. So imagine all the Zomatos and the Swiggies of the world and, uh, you know, the deliveries are being actually made uh, at home. In fact, I wrote uh, cheekily so, but I think I believe in it that... Uh, uh, I think uh, most of us uh, have, uh, uh, you know, uh, either picked up culinary skills in some manner or uh, have decided to bring out the chef in ourselves. And uh, certainly the, there is a bit of a home chef revolution, uh, which is taking place in the condos and the neighborhoods where, you know, uh, ladies and, 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 and guys, you know, who are proud of their cooking skills, they're coming out and they're, they're sort of beginning that trace uh, while your favorite restaurant is no longer operational or 
uh, you don't trust it that much, right? As uh, as a person who's doing it uh, for their family and at their homes, and uh, it's not an industrial operation which is unsupervised and unmonitored. So you have a greater trust and believability in it, and the taste is obviously very different from a large-scale preparation. So I think some of these uh, new concepts will also take uh, space, and uh, they will they will replace some of the earlier concepts that we know for. Uh, uh, you know, dining out and, and, and places which have got severely challenged. I think fashion will also take a bit of a makeover. Uh, we will get some different formats uh, in which we will consume fashion. Uh, I think we'll be more responsible, more uh, uh, more guarded, more uh, more personalized, more customized. Uh, the need for so much fashion in our in our wardrobes uh, is also going to drastically go down. I think there was a slow movement towards more casual clothing. And certainly in the startup industry and the venture capital industry, we weren't like the sorts who would wear suits and ties and none of that and the white shirts and all of that. We, we had anyway moved to a smart casual dressing. But in the corporate world, I think uh, that's going to be a, a move now, which is going to become much faster. Uh, so uh, more people are going to be more easier in, in whatever they are and be able to conduct business. I think I'm already seeing that uh, there's, a, uh, there's a greater... Uh, uh, adoption of smart work tech tools. I mean, like a Zoom or, you know, I mean, see, look at their stock, how it's gone up. And, and then uh, a lot of collaboration tools like this are already coming up and we'll get used to uh, doing business on these tools and uh, be able to develop the same level of trust without requiring a, a physical meetup or a handshake. No, I enjoyed your post and I personally think that two of the sectors that you highlighted in that, which is office as a SaaS and cloud security will be hot markets going forward. And we're already seeing investors fighting for competitive deals, both here in the US and I'm looking at some emerging technologies from India as well. Now that's going to be, these these two are going to be some really, really hot uh, sectors going forward. And especially with, you know, work from home becoming a little more prevalent uh, in the next few years, these two sectors will really be the foundation for what could be the next uh, iteration of of the office, if you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. Look, uh, our uh, home office is kind of morphed. And uh, I know there is a bit of a challenge, um, Akash, uh, over here, because, you know, in the case of junior staff, uh, they often stay out of one-room sets and they kind of share their apartments. It's very difficult to sometimes imagine that, uh, uh, you know, work from home could be a possibility, uh, and how do you do that? So I think even real estate and 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 those concepts will also change. Co-working might become co-meeting. You know, that there might be just meeting venues where you go. It's a sanitized environment. You go and conduct your meeting, and you get out, and you're not there. You know, uh, for all the time. So uh, I think some of these new concepts will take space uh, because um, uh, uh, to facilitate this new working economy. Uh, which is morphing uh, the home and the home and the workplace boundaries, and you go out and, and, and sort of purchase it at, at convenience for a short period of time, get the work done, and then you know come back, uh, come back home. So I think uh, uh, I, I think it's also going to shape travel uh, in a large way, uh, which is you know I, I often think, and I think I saw a couple of posts from uh, a few few founders uh, on that already that you know. Earlier, we used to sort of, uh, in, a, in a heartbeat, book an air ticket and, you know, travel from Delhi to Mumbai for those two important meetings. And then, you know, I often used to wonder, was it that important? And now I'm seriously thinking it's not, it's not required at all. And, uh, you know, uh, maybe we could accomplish the same result over a Zoom call. So why was it that important to catch a flight and, 
you know, uh, uh, just clog the airways. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I think some of those conscious decisions around productivity are going to be taken. And uh, tools for collaboration, tools which allow uh, multiple people uh, working across from their homes to effectively collaborate while keeping their personal lives and homes uh, functional and private uh, when they need to. So, you know, you've got to take the coffee break, you've got to take the lunch breaks. A lot of people are complaining that. Uh, and certainly I am, but I'm actually uh, seeing myself work more than uh, uh, without breaks, uh, uh, you know, uh, as compared to what I used to work earlier. So I think those breaks and those kind of, uh, you know, get up and get the blood circulation going, that's, that's all very necessary. And it's all part of life. I mean, there's a bit of socialization. So uh, one would do a phone call in the middle. One would do a physical meetup in a, in a normal workday. One would do a meeting. Uh, on the travel across, you know, so I think some of that needs to be implemented in the right fashion to get the right productivity. Uh, otherwise, it can, be, it can be quite fatiguing and one way uh, to have all your time blocked just because you're at home, you know, and working from home. So uh, that's the other bit. And I think trust factor is going to go up. Uh, in fact, people are going to be, um, I, I, I potentially see a reverse migration, uh, which is, you know, rather than being cramped in a small, uh, high, uh, uh, you know, high rental uh, accommodation in a, in a, in a top tier city uh, to hold on to your job. Maybe your, you know, company will give you an option. Uh, and I'm not just talking about startups to say, hey, why don't you go back to where you belong and just uh, operate from there. And it's going to be a saving for you. And even if it doesn't translate into uh, a like for like compensation, even if it means taking a bit of a cut, I think a lot of people will offer it. Because uh, net off, they're going to be in a much better place. And uh, yeah, and if you if you're going to be more productive and have more time on hand for things that you want to do, uh, then it's great. And uh, yeah, you don't you don't have to commute back home on the weekends uh, to be with your family or to be with your parents or something like that. So I think all of those uh, uh, on the on, on 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 multiple fronts are going to get uh, you know have a have an impact on travel, on accommodation on uh, jobs, on job security, on how you collaborate, uh, personal private life. So I think uh, uh, we're in for, we're in for, you know, and you can imagine, I mean, if 20% uh, workforce moves out of a top tier city, what impacts does it have on accommodation, on rentals, on, on restaurants, cafes, their revenues and things like that. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, so I think it's, uh, we have interesting times uh, ahead, uh, too early to predict, but it's, uh, I, I certainly feel that it's coming. Absolutely. I mean, standard of living and quality of life will become important to people and cities might not really be as alluring as they once were, especially with technology and brands now penetrating middle Indian markets. You know, it's, it's really an interesting time that we're, we're looking at people being okay in migrating to say tier two cities and saying, hey, you know what, I'm happy to work out of here because I think I'll have a better quality of life. I think I can save better. And I think people will start considering these things, especially millennials who, you know, are known to live very frivolous sort of lifestyles will now also start putting their own needs and, and securities and, and things that are important to them uh, first, rather than just thinking about, oh, I want to live in a city. Because uh, at the end of the day, all of these brands and technologies are now entering um, multiple markets and that just makes life so much more easier. And I love discussing about these current climate with investors. Gives me a chance to understand where their, where their heads are at and it gives me a chance to really understand how they're also thinking about making investments. Because when from these conversations, you can really understand some of the thesis that they might internally have or, you know, try, 
get their perspective about middle india and if there's an opportunity there for them to be making investments in as well yeah absolutely so i think uh, we're all in for a a, a, a different uh, world emerging uh, ahead of us and uh, uh, i think we should look for uh, early signals of that uh, happening uh, and and you know demand for automation uh, is also going to be uh, quite uh, and i'm already seeing signs of that being reported in the media so it's already hit our shores and uh, i certainly see a change in mindset as far as uh, india is concerned in terms of paying for technology earlier i feel that the indians and indian businesses didn't want to uh, pay for technology uh, and uh, with this situation they're going to be have to and they're much more open today uh, to adopt automation to adopt you know cloud based platforms and pay for services uh, uh much more than before uh simply because you know there is there's actually going to be no choice uh you're not going to accept a higher labor wage rate uh you know just because uh, uh, the, the supply of uh, you know skilled labor for that particular role has 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 gone down and uh, you'll have to fundamentally change the system you know otherwise you will not be able to get the same output out of it you'll have a few seats vacant if you implement the same system and you just had uh, uh, you know the same uh, level of intake coming back so reskilling upskilling i think in the field of education that's also going to be a direct fallout of this you can't sort of return back to the same job and you know sort of keep doing the same thing in certain places uh, so that is going to be a high potential area tomorrow industrial automation saas based uh, you know automation uh both for uh, services as well as uh, manufacturing and many other industries uh, will be the order of the day um health certainly is uh, going to see uh, a phenomenal uh, i think uh, in better in terms of automation self empowerment uh, digital care uh, platforms which help you to you know sort of monitor manage uh, uh, your own health i think those are going to come up and they're going to win your trust and and then products and services flowing out of them are going to be uh, definitely more uh, you know recommended and demanded in the market versus let's say just you know what you uh, see as a brand appear on a television ad or a youtube ad and then you go ahead and you know sort of think that is good for you and purchase it off the shelf uh, either online or otherwise so uh, closer proximity with your consumers direct to consumer businesses in health and wellness personal products uh, all of these i think uh, will get uh, impacted and you're right that you know uh brands today and markets today are completely uh you know seamless uh so it's not like a certain brand is only available in in a top tier market and it can't be made available in uh, uh in a tier, in a tier 2 or tier 3 town so quality of life and uh, uh you know managing your life with the digital tools as far as possible having the power and control with information uh and guided uh, sort of experiences uh, people will be willing to pay for that absolutely this is wonderful insight and i love it but now let's rewind the clock a little bit i want to talk to you about your journey you've had a very interesting career so far which led up to orios now take us to that journey and tell us about the key moments that have defined your career so far oh great <laughs> so this is a walk back uh, you know many years so uh my uh, my career actually spanned across consumer and retail businesses uh, i also worked in an internet business uh, in a startup company as part of the launch code team 
back in the first dot-com boom days uh, out of Bangalore year 2001. Uh, started off my career uh, with uh, Procter & Gamble, worked with them in personal care uh, and uh, fabric care categories and also in sales, uh, customer development over there. They used to call it customer business development. Uh, and uh, sort of, you know, got my initial training in, uh, in, in consumer space uh, in India from there. Uh, worked in a startup that gave me that uh, tremendous experience. So that was a very defining moment for me professionally, how it was to work in a startup as compared to, you know, a 150-year-old company with set processes and rules and all you were is, uh, you know, you had to walk in and every, everything was laid out for you, including, uh, you know, how to sort of press the doorknob, so to speak. So uh, here, uh, everything was undefined. You were thrown into an undefined space at an early part of your career. I absolutely loved it. Some of those relationships, in fact, many of them still uh, last until this date because of the shared uh, energy and the shared experiences that we've had. Uh, so those relationships tend to be very close uh, when you work in a startup uh, right at the uh, time of inception. Uh, those never sort of leave you. So those, those, that was very professionally defining in terms of taking risks. Uh, I mean, leaving Procter & Gamble to join a startup was itself a risk, but I took it because I wanted that. I was excited by that experience and I wanted to create something uh, sort of new. Uh, and that was, I think, the first uh, seeds of entrepreneurship uh, that I realized in myself. And uh, that is something that, you know, it took uh, a few, uh, uh, few career stints in the corporate world to, and, and then the real opportunity emerged in India. And that's, that's when it surfaced again, which is why I, how I found myself uh, in the venture ecosystem uh, back again, uh, you know, uh, from the other side as an investor. So, uh, yeah, so I continued my corporate journey. I built that uh, career and understanding. I traveled the open corner of the country. I shifted from being the brand to the retail side, being the retailer, uh, worked in food retail. Uh, another defining moment for me was, you know, switching industries, of course, but also uh, living and working out of Australia. So uh, I was chief sales and marketing officer for uh, Pizza Hut in Australia. So it was a completely different country, small uh, 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 island, uh, you know, sort of by itself, 23 million people, the size of Delhi NCR. And uh, yeah, and uh, you know, 2011 and 12, those were very interesting years. Everybody, including the cab driver, used to have an iPhone. And I remember our business used to be only about 8 to 10% uh, online sales, whereas our competitor, Domino's, was much higher than that. And uh, our brand was, you know, suffering. We were going uh, backwards. And uh, my brief was to actually uh, bring about the digitization of the entire business. And that's exactly what I landed up doing. So when I left in two years time, finishing my contract, uh, we were up at uh, you know, 35% of our sales was, uh, was digital. And it was uh, nothing spectacular. I mean, I, one, one had to do just the basics. We didn't even have an iPhone app at that time when I, would, when I just entered the country. And you know, given that everybody had an iPhone, uh, that was a very basic thing. We were still taking telephone orders. We moved online, uh, moved to, you know, some basic stuff like, you know, you have a, a website that is that is completely adaptable to different uh, devices because, you know, people are using iPads, phones, and desktops to order uh, uh, pizza delivery. Uh, and we moved our, you know, sort of entire uh, marketing, uh, you know, put it up for, you know, complete uh, rehash and reorganization, got initial uh, uh, position defined, got our agency to redefine it, 25% of our budgets uh, went from television to online and uh, the entire thing got uh, shaped up. So that was a great experience for me to actually see what was going to happen in India much later on. 
And the time for me to sort of switch sides came in 2015 when I uh, looked back and I said, well, this is great. I've experienced all that, uh, met different kinds of consumers in different segments and sectors and price sensitivities and in different structures of businesses, you know, startup, family business, large MNCs um, and franchise business and a company owned business. So I got all that different experience. Uh, and uh, well, the seeds of entrepreneurship that were sown pretty earlier, they sort of started surfacing again because I saw a great transformation take place in India with the coming of Geo and with the growth in uh, you know smartphones, conversion of uh, more and more consumers uh, to, to doing online transactions. Of course, it started off with a few e-commerce brands and and the uh, uh, you know cab uh, taxi aggregator category, but I saw those changes taking place in our own lives. Uh, so if we were sort of going ahead and doing that, then the pace of that was only going to increase. So, uh, and that's how I came across, uh, you know, Arias, uh, met up with, uh, uh, you know, Rehan, who's a founder and, a, um, uh, who's a founder and, uh, you know, he was looking for a second partner to join him and expand the firm. We were in our second fund. Uh, so we met and we spoke, uh, and, and, uh, you know, I, I joined the firm as a venture partner in 2017, late. And uh, then joined full-time 2018, uh, unwinding myself out of uh, various things. I've also done angel investments in different spaces. I wasn't part of any angel network because I felt that I should take the uh, risk myself rather than, you know, uh, just follow a herd because, you know, that's that's where the herd is going. Uh, and I sort of, you know, risked, um, you know, capital. And I also lost capital. But then I learned uh, a whole lot about investing. Uh, and, and those lessons will never leave me, which is, a, you know, which is... A, you know, the, the, the emphasis that you place on a great team, the emphasis that you place uh, on a large market, the emphasis that you place on a, on a, on a good model uh, to start with and a, and a, and a quick uh, and smart execution. Uh, that's what you require as the essential DNAs uh, of a very successful team. Otherwise, you can just keep overthinking and keep burning because all you have is, is, is cash with you in the account and every minute that you spend overthinking stuff and not doing stuff and learning from it, it's just time spent and it's it's very old and corporate-ish because you know corporates can afford to do that and that's the way they function they believe they believe on uh, 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 risk minimization and they actually thrive on it but that's not your dna i mean here you have to fail small fail fast uh, pick up the learnings and then go and win big uh, so that's the uh, sort of learnings that i picked up from there and uh, that's how rise uh, seemed to be the right uh, step for me. Venture capital ecosystem uh, was the right step for me uh, to go back and, uh, you know, sort of reconnect and link back with the uh, startup groups that I had, you know, sort of experimented with uh, in my career uh, much earlier. But I think that was uh, maybe not the right time because in India, we didn't have the large critical mass. I mean, I, we had dial-up modems during that time. I mean, if you ask millennials today, what's a dial-up modem, they won't even know. They'll have to sort of uh, look up on the internet and figure out what that is. But uh, uh, the real, you know, the real digitization of India has started. So I'm very glad that uh, I'm on this side and meeting great founders every day. And uh, yeah, um, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, helping co-create some uh, good brands that are going to be part of our lives tomorrow. That's awesome. I mean, I've recently started angel investing, smaller checks, but it's a completely different game altogether when you start investing your own money. Um, than uh, firms. So I can really relate to what you mean when it comes to putting in and learning from your own experience, you know, losing money, it could be, you know, maybe you get one or two hits, but it is such a learning experience when you start, you know, investing your own personal money into 
into startups. It is definitely a high risk and high reward if done really well. Now, yeah. you've got to witness some um, really industry transformations from a consumer standpoint, be in the biggest one probably being offline to online. Now, since you have this extensive background in retail and FMCG, and also have known to make investments in the space, I thought we could focus on that for this episode and delve deeper into what it takes to invest in both these sectors. Now, sure. I think the yeah. best way to begin would be to define this further so that we establish a little bit of a context for our listeners. How would you classify retail and what might fall under fast moving consumer goods or FMCG as it's known? So um, uh, FMCG is uh, nothing but, uh, you know, the brands that we consume, right? So it could be a milk powder, it could be a, a tea bag, it could be a skincare cream, it could be a shaving gel. So these are all uh, brands that we consume. And these are basically products. And uh, retail is uh, uh, essentially uh, the channels. Uh, so the channels through which you tend to sell, uh, it could be the small mom and pop stores, it could be the large stores, it could be an online channel. Uh, so retail, uh, and it could be, you know, social commerce in today's world. We've seen the growth of Pindodo in China and some 20 other social commerce models over there in different categories. So that's very particular and uh, unique to Asia. Uh, so I think the channels through which you sell, those are basically retail. Uh, right. This could be online, this could be offline, uh, they could be hybrid models uh, in certain categories and sectors. Great. Now, why are you bullish on these markets and how big of a challenge or opportunity does India present to startups in this space? Or basically what I'm trying to get to is what is the landscape for FMCG and retail in India currently today in this market? So uh, let me start with retail. Uh, I think, look, the, uh, it is no secret that uh, post-COVID uh, uh, essentials uh, have survived and have gone up. Today, we had results of uh, some of the companies uh, which are big, like Nestle and Britannia, and they've uh, completely bucked the trend uh, uh, over here in terms of you know their sales growth and profit growth. And uh, what that tells us is that uh, groceries, uh, which is about uh, $500 billion in India, uh, is going to be uh, is going to be is, uh, is going to get refashioned. Uh, I think uh, that is the large sort of space where there has been uh, there there has been some transformation, but the transformation is very far from being complete. Uh, we've had the entry of you know uh, what are called as e-grocers, which is online to offline businesses. The likes of uh, Grofers, Big Basket, Amazon, with its fresh, um, uh, you know, uh, positioning or the fresh, fresh category where it gives you fruits and veggies and uh, products, uh, FMCG products, to your doorstep every day on different defined slots. And there have been a multitude of other businesses, uh, you know, in the fresh meat, etc., category, which have uh, which have kind of sprung up. Uh, but are these like eighty percent of the market today? No, they are not. Uh, in the retail. Uh, space, uh, there is the mom and pop store, which rules large. 90% of the business uh, flows through the neighborhood small mom and pop store, which is, you know, 300 to 400 square feet in size, run by a small uh, entrepreneur who lives in the same neighborhood. Probably he's got a shop above or below. 
his own uh, place where he lives and uh, he runs it as a family business uh, which is the smallest size of business that we can see and there are 15 million plus such stores in the country uh, if not more and uh, these are the guys who have actually not been touched by technology at all and uh, while we've seen the recent uh, announcements by uh, Geomart and uh, WhatsApp uh, basically linked to Facebook uh, which invested in uh, in the geo platforms uh, connecting up with these uh, small stores called Kirana stores um, uh, for sending them businesses and probably maybe tomorrow addressing uh, you know uh, one of the supply uh, needs of theirs uh, optimistically uh, as, as one of the supply potential potential supply partners uh, there's a lot to be done in that space the problems of that store is very unique it has to be solved end to end uh, there are uh, no two stores are the same. They are segmented. Some do a certain higher level of business. Uh, some do a lower level of business. So there are brackets and buckets and they have to be digitized end to end, which means that you have to take over their supply. You have to give them uh, data-based uh, inventory and working capital management possibilities, credit included, based on data. And uh, you have to make access to credit available, uh, which is not being extended to them because they don't leave actually any digital footprint uh, behind uh, for anyone to underwrite that data. So uh, there is a big space. In fact, Orias uh, recently invested in uh, one such concept called Gully Network, where uh, Gully Network essentially uh, digitizes uh, the entire operations of the stores and uh, also creates a brand in the front uh, thereby making a chain of such modern, small format, modern trade stores called Gali Mart. Uh, it did so in Bangalore. And uh, it results in increase in earnings for the retailer. It, it makes time available for them to attend to other things, including customer experience, transforms that inside the store. Data and algorithm take over uh, the supply part of it. So even if you were a distributor who will become a licensed distributor to the Gali Mart stores tomorrow, uh, running off their platform, uh, you will be basically uh, operating off those tools with a much lower manpower, with a much lower cost structure than if you were to uh, see some other distributors who operate without the tech today, uh, mainly for many of these FMCG brands. Uh, so I think this is the large scale, largest scale transformation that is uh, set to take place in India. And only once the store is digitized, can they then put, take full advantage of any platform like a Geomart or even a Swiggy or a Dunzo and make real-time inventory available on the platform to have a reliable fulfillment rate at the consumer end, making the whole thing very sticky. Otherwise, you know, as it stands today, the, the experience is poor. Uh, even if an order or, or, or demand is sent from any of the online platforms, uh, the small retail store is unable to fulfill it uh, because they have no connect, uh, uh, which is real-time with their inventory at the back end or at the front end. Uh, so it's completely hapless. Uh, it sort of welcomes it, but but can't retain those consumers. Can't can't really build a franchise on it. Can't increase their earnings. So, I think the digitization of the small stores is going to be much faster a phenomenon than the digitization of consumers. You know, turning uh, into more e-grocery consumers. I think uh, we've approached it from that end, thinking that that's going to happen, but the so-called uh, Amazonization. Our, our, our platformization of those consumers, that has already been done uh, to a large extent over the last three, four, five years. And uh, 
you know, those happen to be in the top tier cities on the top you know, or in the tier two cities. And it's going to be a bit of a slow burn. Even if after COVID, you know, I'm hearing that the orders have gone up, they've doubled, etc. It's just consumers uh, were forced to do that. But the small neighborhood store hasn't really disappeared in all these years in any other Asian markets, whether it's Vietnam, Myanmar, whatever, Thailand, etc. Uh, it just needs to be modernized. So I think that's 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 one uh, space in retail that I like to see uh, getting transformed. And we've already made one of the investments that I said, Gully Network, on that. Uh, and the team is doing a phenomenal job. Uh, on the on the on the CPG side, uh, or on the FMCG side, as it's called, uh, the uh, the era of you know having a large part of a family's uh, shopping basket consist of brands that are being advertised constantly at you, and uh, you can go and purchase them in in, in any way possible, uh, online or offline. Uh, I think the share of those brands is definitely going to be challenged. It's already been seen in the US and uh, in other countries. It's going to be challenged by direct-to-consumer brands, which uh, uh, through technology, uh, they are able to aggregate you on a content and a community-based platform. They are able to get information and data off you from the category uh, on what your preference is and what your own uh, sort of behavior and what your own you know, personal information might be with regards to use it as a category. And then using that information, uh, fashion products and experiences which are coming directly to you without the need for a channel uh, uh, where it's going to be discovered. So that the so the platforms or the, or the communities themselves become the channels where you discover the brand. So 20 years back, uh, a consumer in the US go to a Walmart or to a Target and then discover, hey, this is a new brand in the fabric hair category. And then probably see a television ad or a YouTube ad and, and a Super Bowl ad and things like that. But <clears throat> the same thing used to happen in India. But, you know, they are, uh, we are seeing the emergence of more trustworthy, more proximal uh, brands, which are engaging with you directly. Uh, don't need a celebrity. They are honest. Uh, display their ingredients, uh, quite honestly, not in fine print. In fact, they're proud about it and uh, they serve them to you directly uh, with good honest prices and a direct customer support available to you. Uh, now that's the new modern experience uh, that I think is gonna take over and it's gonna start increasingly penetrating our lives. Uh, yeah, so I think these are two trends and, 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 and you know, we, uh, we at Arise have already um, sort of also uh, sort of picked up this in our investment philosophy uh, one of our investments uh, done many years ago, which is Country Delight, uh, continues to chug along, uh, building its image of a fresh and pure, uh, direct-to-home uh, uh, brand uh, for uh, uh, your daily groceries and, it and items where you wanted to experience more freshness and purity. So they started off with dairy and uh, dairy products, then moved on to uh, bread, and uh, recently launched uh, high-protein eggs. Uh, removing some of those freshness and purity concerns with the commoditized product outside. No, thank you so much for sharing some context there. And you spoke about digitization, Amazonization, and platformization. And these are really difficult words, in fact. But, yeah. uh, you know, I've heard some investors say that it's a contrarian time to be investing in FMCG. They say that it's historically been a sector that's not given great exits, or even if they have, it takes an awfully long time for that to happen. 
Why do you think that's the case? And if so, how do you feel about that statement? So uh, our experience with Country Delight has been excellent. And that's why I qualified that uh, you know, a CPG brand uh, served to the consumer using the traditional methods that companies like Unilever, Procter & Gamble have used and owned and, and perfected uh, over you know, hundreds of years. Uh, those are going to be extremely difficult businesses to sustain, build and deliver value. So we at Arias uh, believe that the right way uh, that a startup uh, should think, and we would certainly like to invest in businesses like these, is to see uh, CPG, or sorry, I keep using CPG, FMCG brands come out of uh, an intimacy with the consumer. So these should be direct to consumer, delivered home, and you're directly in touch with the consumer, right? Now that is an essential for us. Now that's disrupting the traditional model where you push a product through your you know, third-party distribution, through layers and layers of distribution uh, to reach those various stores and then put an expensive ad, signed up a celebrity uh, to talk about you know, what it's gonna do for you in 30 seconds flat. Uh, so that model has been done and I think somebody else is good at it but uh, we would like to focus on uh, rather you know, brands that are born out of platforms and communities where uh, you have a intimacy with the consumer, you are taking data around habits, preferences, satisfaction and dissatisfaction from the consumer with their current products. And before the large brands can sort of jump into that, uh, you've already built uh, a, a, a nice solid franchise for you where the customer acquisition cost was far lower and you're able to get a high frequency repeat purchase going, which is implicit in FMCG business because um, that these are the brands that you use every day. So uh, I think we have great examples of brands which used, uh, you know, uh, left of center uh, kind of philosophies. We know about the Dollar Shave Club in the US, which got acquired by Gillette. Uh, we know about similar, you know, brands uh, here in India. We had Beardo, etc. Come up. So there are uh, uh, brands which have done that, continue to do that. I mean, there are numerous examples of brands which are built around communities and engaging directly with consumers. And then that's the that's the new way to deliver FMCG brands. And we certainly believe that that can create a value uh, which is far bigger. They will be more sustainable. They will be far more profitable. The customer acquisition cost is not going to be a combination of you know third-party push channel distribution and a celebrity-endorsed uh, uh, media pull generation, uh, but it's going to be uh, about co-creation with a community of users and having acquired them once, just serving them uh, repeatedly at a very low cost, and uh, you know coming up with almost crowdsource ideas that are designed to succeed rather than you know sort of. Uh, go through the traditional method of developing products by uh, searching for insights and then doing some extensive testing, which is what the, uh, what, which is what my previous life has been all actually all about. So uh, we used to have big, you know, sampling programs and you know, uh, volume estimation models done by market research agencies, samples dropped to people's homes, and in large quantities, and then uh, you know, used to uh, do a lot of that, and then the entire third-party channel distribution, etc., was all. Uh, set in any case, <clears throat> and uh, um, companies which were entering into India would uh, would actually spend a lot of money developing these. I mean, we've seen that for Coke in India, Pepsi, etc., all of that, Procter & Gamble, 
included, they spent a lot of time, uh, you know, uh, uh, actually not being profitable in the country and just building the infrastructure of third party distribution, uh, reaching up uh, to the consumers. But that is today is no longer required. Uh, you don't need to uh, become in order to become a hundred million dollar brand. Uh, in today's times, you don't need to be uh, pushing through that scale of distribution. You just need to be on, you know, you just need to be developing a, a D2C brand, which is close to consumers' homes, uh, delivered directly to their doorstep, uh, low cost of acquisition, high frequency of purchase, high uh, lifetime value, and a perfect example is Country Delight. What does drive valuations, especially on the FMCG side of the business? Is it the technology? Is it the consumer insights? Is it the brand as such? What are investors really looking for when they're investing in a company that is in this sector? So I think from our perspective, we're looking for uh, clearly a, an insight on which uh, a business can be created. Uh, we're looking for brands which challenge the status quo. Uh, it could be a monopoly or a duopoly of a couple of brands which have been around and uh, where there is a third uh, you know, plank of positioning for uh, having a brand emerge. Uh, we would look for a proprietary channel of distribution, which is, uh, uh, which, is, which, is, which is not dependent on third party and payments to third parties because we don't want our invested capital to go into paying listing fees on third party you know, channel stores for distribution and visibility for the brands uh, to be discovered by consumers. Uh, and then having promoters stand by the aisles and you know, that expense is, is, is on top of that. So I don't think that makes sense anymore. Uh, consumers first uh, port of uh, discovery in that sense is, uh, is today uh, the internet. And uh, the internet can take place in uh, multiple forms. When you're looking for a product, you may discover a product. Or when you're interacting with your family and friends on the internet through multiple social media platforms, whether it's Insta or uh, WhatsApp or YouTube, etc., you get forwarded uh, your recommendations by by your friends and family and that's how you come to discover a product so these are the two ways in which consumers today are discovering the product they aren't you know sort of sitting in front of a, their favorite tv show uh and saying oh uh, when is the next ad break gonna come and i'm going to be told about this new product that has come up in this category i think that paradigm has shifted uh and we are, we are, we are seeing under the you know and we you can you can correlate the two phenomena. On one hand, we're seeing the rise of gaming. On one hand, we're seeing the rise of OTT platforms. So consumers are paying money to see uninterrupted TV shows on a non-appointment viewing basis. So you know how are you going to reach them, right? So you have to reach them through friends and family, uh, through social media. Uh, you know where they're getting recommended certain products, or they will have to be reached by creating you know communities around content of those categories, which could engage these consumers uh, to start with. And as you gain their trust, uh, they would start to consume the products because on the same community, you will get the recommendations uh, from consumers who've tried the product, found it to be useful, and they'll pass it on to others. Uh, you could introduce the brand by using some offline advertising, but then after that, I think uh, you know the entire product experience, all of that has to take over. The supermarket shelf is not the place uh, for you to discover uh, products and to look for recommendations, uh, you know, that, 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 uh, 
uh, used to be the only place, but I don't think that's uh, that's the place today. And and therefore, brands which align themselves to it and uh, build their stories and engagement uh, with consumers around online content and communities uh, will have an everlasting relationship uh, with the consumers at the lowest cost possible. Uh, they will not have to spend millions of dollars in research. They will not have to spend you know, millions of dollars uh, accessing uh, uh, retail audit data from different agencies as to how much they sold on you know, secondary and primary and all of that and compare the numbers and do you know, extensive analysis. I think that uh, doesn't need to be done. I mean, you get your feedback immediately if you're, if you're directly connected to the consumer. They're unsparing. Uh, they, they put up their reviews. I mean, much like, you know, for example, you see that on uh, many e-commerce platforms. So if you have your own community, that becomes your own platform. You're getting the reviews, you're getting the feedback. You can make the changes, you can alter the pricing, you can alter the product composition. Uh, you can address customer grievances and you can build an image. Uh, you can have webinars, you can have shows right there on your platforms to talk about your product and customers giving testimonials. I mean, you don't need to sign uh, you know, celebrities anymore actually. Uh, People are also using, uh, you know, uh, influencers to, I think, generate some initial awareness. Uh, but obviously, the uh, sustainable value generated in a business is when the brand is recognized. The brand has repeat cohorts, which are excellent. There are great NPS scores. People are recommending it to others, and that's a sign of a uh, that's a sign of a great, uh, you know, FMCG business. Totally agreed. I mean, today the average millennial lives their lives fluidly between offline and online and they're giving priority to things that are Instagrammable, so to speak. And so the first generation to have, it is the first generation to have access to information like never before. And all this makes them highly dis discerning as group of consumers. And on the other hand, you have Gen Z today, which is almost born with a phone in their hand. So these are behavioral shifts that we're seeing and they're going to have a lasting impact in the way that brands, in the way that brands are being built and also the way that investors are backing these companies. Now, I wanted to extend that question to you and talk to you about subscription and non-subscription DNVB businesses. Where's your mind at? What do you think about from a consumer standpoint and FMCG standpoint as well? How do you look at these two business models while evaluating uh, an investment opportunity? Yeah, so I think I uh, sort of alluded to, um, I think I sort of alluded to it, you know, so uh, typical DNVBs, you know, the likes of Kylie Jenner, et cetera. So these are, uh, uh, these are absolutely born off the internet, right? By definition. So, uh, if you're if you start off, if your strategy is to start talking about the category and offer an insight and offer a service, let's say even for free, and uh, let people talk about you know the different issues that they have in the category and probably with the existing products, then uh, that gives to a gives rise to a crowdsourced view of what the what the next product launch should be and if uh, you're able to sort of do that then what you've got is a you know ready uh, you know ready pre-booking platform for you uh, which 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 wasn't the paradigm earlier because earlier it was all about push and then using the pull factor to you know let the consumers go and experience the product and purchase it off the supermarket shelf uh, but here now what you're doing is you're you're you're, you're co-creating you're co-developing uh, and then you're making the product available and you know the, the audience is already waiting for it So the pull factor already exists before the distribution has started and uh, uh, The product has been co-created. It's almost like you set up the R&D lab over there and, and you did that and you did the market research You collapsed all of these 
sort of traditional divisions of an FMCG company into the platform, the community that you built, conducted surveys, sent samples out, got the feedback, and uh, uh, you know quickly came up with a winner, and then you make it available and announce the launch there, and you know introduce incentives uh, for consumers to spread the news across to other friends and family, and uh, you know every consumer who is happy. Uh, if they tell 10 or 12 other people, I mean, that drops your customer acquisition cost uh, uh, tremendously. And there is no need for, you know, push advertising, uh, trying to drum that message over a couple of, uh, you know, ads uh, into you every time that you, you know, you'll possibly do something on the internet by just simply installing cookies and following you everywhere through retargeting and remarketing. So uh, this is then, uh, you know, this is, this is, this is the future. Uh, and uh, we feel that consumers would want to engage with this more and more uh, in the FMCG categories because they're so uh, intrinsic to our existence. They represent the most basic needs of our life. And so far, we've been, we've been, we've been dealing with all these decisions by way of push advertising, uh, which was pushed in front of us in between our favorite TV programs and, 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 and you know, free YouTube videos, if I may call it, and even YouTube has got a, you know, now a, a premium subscription plan and I'm seeing that the numbers are going up. Uh, and Netflix certainly has gone up, you know, in India and it's like a big, uh, uh, it's, it's a big uh, uh, country for them now uh, with subscription running at, you know, uh, millions of consumers and I'm going strong. So, uh, I mean, all of this is a sign of things to come that consumers are blocking push advertising in their lives. Uh, they are choosing to spend their time on the internet, increasingly so in places where they want to spend it. So uh, they're going to spend their time, uh, therefore, uh, absorbing more information. Their influencers uh, or sources of information are not going to be advertisements, but are going to be real human beings. So when you do that, then you've got to, uh, you know, you've got to be present there as a DNBB and generating that interest and uh, causing consumers to become real brand ambassadors and they become your you know sort of soft uh, and silent advertising but you know 6x more powerful than uh, than a celebrity run tv ad i know it sounds a bit of a leap but i think we will see that change uh, much faster and the consumption of media uh, especially during covid time and some of the habit changes that are taking place with respect to us with respect to that is is kind of pointing in that direction anyway right so there is less and less space for paid advertising. There is less and less space for print advertising. In fact, the newspapers kind of stopped printing uh, in some of the cities uh, in India here as well. And we saw thinner and thinner newspapers. Uh, there is extensive media spillage. You don't know who you've gotten to. You don't know what kind of response you've, or what it's got for you. Uh, everything is so indirect, right? You display an ad, you see the sales go up. You kind of measure it 15 days later through a retail audit agency. Uh, and then you try and surmise for yourself, hey, uh, which element of my marketing strategy worked to which extent and therefore which one was more effective. But here, in the case of community, you know exactly what happened because you know there are 250,000 you know, people on the platform. You can see them, you can feel them, you know their email addresses. And if you know that so many uh, bottles of shampoo or bottles of skincare cream or some kids' uh, products got picked up, then you know what percentage of the audience is transacting with you, is, 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 is ordering from you because you can... I mean, uh, the ordering platform is, is is no different from the community platforms. The channel is the the channel of engagement is not different from channel of distribution, right? So the data is highly correlatable. It is highly accurate, uh, 
and even if you advertise on the social media uh, using some runoff site, you know, banners or networks or programmatics, you're essentially calling people to the same platform in any case. Even Insta's, you know, turned into a commerce uh, 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 commerce place as well, as you know. I mean, they've got uh, shopping features, you know. So, um, so I think that that all is pointing towards uh, collapsing of, uh, you know, or merging of channels of engagement and distribution. Uh, so all of these trends are sort of pointing uh, in that direction. Now, you're absolutely right. Now, historically speaking, brands were known for product design, supply management, and brand marketing, while retailers focused on context, consumer service, and servicing the transaction. Today, that's not really the case. The lines have blurred and brands are retailers and retailers are brands. They are challenging the economic, traditional economic models of the past. Apple's a prime example of a company that has done great on both being a brand as well as a retailer. And in the Indian context, I think Lenscart fits in that bucket. Now, I think to make this question really interesting, let me, let me ask you this. Will you invest in a business that does not have an online presence? Oh, um, don't think so. Yeah, uh, <laughs> don't think so. Uh, we're not going to invest in yet another brand of uh, skin cream. Uh, which is being placed on a traditional supermarket shelf or even uh, an Amazon store and does not have an active community and direct connect with the consumers going. If that was your question, so I, I think, yeah, that's the answer. So you do need some sort of technology play involved even when it comes to consumer products, either through distribution, either through the product itself. Uh, otherwise, it's very difficult, in your opinion, to back the, the start of a business that doesn't have any start of an online presence. Yeah, so uh, in fact, we believe the other way. We believe that there has to be a deep online presence. Uh, there has to be direct connect with the consumer. Uh, and you're absolutely right. So you are your own channel. Uh, you are your own channel as far as channel of engagement is concerned. You are your own television set of the yesteryears. Uh, you are uh, marketing uh, your own uh, you know, product on your own TV channel, so to speak, through, and that's your community platform. And uh, there is a button hidden over there where consumers can easily transact and ship the product directly uh, to themselves, either on a subscription basis or uh, on an infrequent basis, depending on the usage of the category. So, uh, as I said, I mean, I give an example of uh, Country Delight. Uh, that is a direct-to-consumer milk brand. Now, who would have thought that the that, that India's most trusted brand, Amul, uh, could be challenged? And, uh, you know, it has a perfect method of collection, distribution, uh, you know, through, through their own and third-party stores. And it's a, it's a brand which goes into consumers' homes. But yet, uh, consumers are asking for more freshness and purity. We know that, that milk travels 14 days. And uh, there has been, uh, you know, uh, uh, doubts and concerns raised about the purity as well. As it travels through uh, multiple hoops and, and comes through many, uh, you know, many hands and through many channels. Now here is a, a business which was, uh, you know, uh, created out of that with a brand standing for fresh and freshness and purity, where the milk is sourced from the farms, brought into the country glide processing plant, and then shipped right across to your home with no middleman. And uh, the uh, uh, the offbeat logistics direct uh, directly delivered to your doorstep every day because milk is a is a daily consumption item and and. and Homes wanted fresh every day. The same thing goes for bread. The same thing goes for eggs that they've introduced. So all of these are, you know, I would say kind of commoditized. Is there a brand of eggs? No, there isn't a brand of eggs in the country. There is a brand of uh, bread. Uh, there are multiple brands. 
concerns around freshness and purity. So they converted that entire satisfaction, dissatisfaction into, uh, into, into a demand for a product and, uh, and, and a whole category. Uh, and then the entire ordering experience is completely online. Uh, you cannot order country delight by going to your next door retailer. You cannot order it on Amazon. You can't order it on a milk basket. You, you can only order that on a country delight app, which is downloaded into your phone. It's a subscription plan. You, you, you've got to have uh, money in the wallet, much like you have if you want to order an Uber or an Ola taxi. Uh, and then you place the uh, order on a recurring basis uh, or on an infrequent basis. So brands, uh, like I was giving an example, a skincare brand, yet another skincare brand, you know, having the best fragrance in the world and it's going to do wonders to your skin. But if it's not going to have an online engagement with the consumer, a direct handshake with the consumer, both for transaction and for feedback, uh, isn't a venture capital investable business, which is going to give 20x, 12x. Uh, uh, it is going to be treated like any other FMCG brand. And then it's going to have an exit probably to a large company saying, okay, you've become $100 million. I, I realize that you can't uh, grow any more than that with the present model that you have. And uh, once you get used to it, look, you can't say that you, you know, you can't stop all, uh, stop the business in that day. When you set up a whole distribution and do third party distribution, you can't suddenly withdraw your brand and say, I'm not going to be present in those channels and yet I'm going to do hundred million dollars of business. So you've got to decide this right at the start on what kind of business uh, model are you going to do this through. So uh, those kind of exits are then typically to large companies who are looking for inorganic acquisitions, in the country, it could be multinationals, could be family-owned businesses who see this as an opportunity. It is sold at a predefined multiple, you know, of the profit, uh, the EBITDA margin, etc., and some, uh, and that's what it is. I think that is uh, kind of underpowered. Uh, you want to, uh, if you want to have a greater impact, a much more defensible moat uh, around your brand and your business, and sort of unpredictability as far as your competition is concerned, and lower costs. Uh, of, of launching fresh brands and new brands, uh, uh, you know, you've got to have your own proprietary pipe uh, through which you can send the messages and send the products. So I think, uh, yeah, so uh, we, we would be uh, sort of, you know, uh, not seeing great value emerge out of those propositions, which are largely then traditional in nature. Okay, fair enough. From a tech perspective, uh, you own the data and that could become your moat. Distribution can be a moat. Pricing can be a moat. When personalization and customizations are differentiators, how do you scale a business at that point? How do you as investors view these opportunities and be like, okay, now we have this great company. They're customizing. They've got data. They've got, they're, they're personalizing all of these experiences for their users. But how do we scale this company from, say, a series B to a series C or beyond level. How do you, how do you guys think about that perspective? Look, a great uh, amount of uh, personalization and customization by definition can't become, can't become scalable, right? Uh, in India, uh, thankfully, it is the size of our population. Even the smallest of clusters tend to be a few million consumers. Now, uh, if you're hit upon an insight around uh, an unmet need in a category, then you can certainly develop a product around it. And uh, that will cater to those few million consumers as a cluster. And you can create that business. Now, when you hit upon the next idea for another cluster, uh, which is looking for something else, then that's customized for that cluster. So I would just adapt that definition and say that it's not uh, you know, individual 
individual personalization, but it's almost like mass customization. So you take a cluster and then you customize it because it has to be uh, it has to be scalable, and scalability requires uh, minimum order quantity of supply. Uh, means that you've got to have a minimum amount of users out there to to, to for you to uh, be able to have the right optimized cost in the business to be able to extract the maximum margins out of it. Otherwise, it's underpowered, and uh, either it's got to be super expensive, uh, and then it becomes a luxury brand, which by then definition is not a highly scalable business, and that's like a just doing a you know just doing a luxury brand like a Moblan, you know, so that's not highly scalable, right? By definition. Uh, so if you're into FMCG, you've got to identify your clusters, go after that insight that unites that cluster. So that cluster becomes homogeneous and check whether you can build a sizable enough business based on a couple of products which can serve that need in that category that nobody else is serving. And you can, you know, uh, serve that need in the most profitable manner, having a certain minimum critical size. Right? Fair enough. That's a great segue into my next uh, segment, in fact, which is a rapid fire where I'm going to put you on the spot and fire some, let's say, interesting questions your way to learn more about your investing persona and the person that you are. Are you ready? <laughs> sure. I'll try. Awesome. Now, how have you changed as an investor from probably when you first started investing as an angel to where you are today? So I think uh, the biggest change that has happened is uh, I look very uh, deep into the teams. And that was one of my learnings uh, during my angel investing period. Uh, that one has to have multiple interactions uh, with the team that you're investing behind to get more insights into how the team thinks. Uh, you have to throw curveballs at them to see how they uh, respond to that, right? And uh, uh, it's very important to know the team, especially at an early stage investment uh, phase where there aren't too many Excel sheets and spreadsheets to go by. So I think that's my biggest uh, sort of axis on which I've changed. Now, is that also the hardest thing about being in venture capital? Because that was going to be my next question, but it seems like there could be some sort of an overlap here. I think, uh, yes. Uh, so <clears throat> it is, uh, I think it does take, uh, I would say maybe experience uh, to be able to differentiate between one team and another, uh, see whether the team is complete in what, it could take to get a, a you know a good uh, a springboard sort of a start to the business versus a slow start and uh, the early stage is quite critical because uh, you know you need a certain basic ingredients uh, to start off the business so for example if you're going to be relying on tech then if you don't have a cto on board as a co-founder then that's a watch out right how can you be doing a company which is based on tech and not have a tech uh, co-founder, right? How can you just have a person who's fundraising and comes from the uh, growth or go-to-market side of things trying to do product and tech? Uh, so I think that is uh, definitely, uh, yeah, that, that's that's definitely uh, uh, a hard thing to do. And you learn it over a period of time by making mistakes, uh, as I certainly did. And uh, yeah, you, you hone that over a period of time. You perfect that over a period of time. Awesome. Now, what's one thing that you like to change about venture capital in India? Well, I think that uh, if I have the power in my hands, I'll make more capital available. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think 
money has got to flow our uh, way in every stage. I think we are undercapitalized in the uh, uh, VC ecosystem in India. Uh, we should we should definitely see more participation from the government. After all, it creates jobs uh, and it creates jobs that are going to survive into the future because by definition, you're working on the future and you're not trying to massage the, the, the past. You're actually trying to question and disrupt the past. And uh, uh, so therefore, I think uh, greater participation from the government, greater participation uh, from uh, wealthy individuals and corporates uh, to jump in uh, with funding and, uh, you know, experience uh, the growth of a new uh, you know uh, new ideas and and, and uh, uh, i'm sure some of them will succeed not just uh, uh, domestically but globally as well as we have seen in certain spheres awesome what kind of businesses will emerge post covid in retail and fmcg in your opinion so i think in uh, retail like i explained uh, the digitization of uh, the small mom and pop kirana store is uh, definitely going to be uh, one of the axes and we've already invested behind it. And we are looking forward to working with all the players in the system, including Geomart, uh, to drive business to these stores and uh, make these stores uh, more, far more efficient and uh, you know, uh, jump themselves into the new uh, sort of space uh, of digital, which they were currently deprived of. And uh, uh, I think that's one space that we clearly think about. Uh, as far as... Uh, CPG brands are concerned, I think I alluded to that, which is uh, direct-to-consumer brands, which are, you know, kind of uh, DNBBs, like you pointed out, subscription brands, uh, health and wellness-oriented brands, brands which uh, are crowdsourced and uh, built around communities, platforms, proprietary channels of engagement and distribution. I think uh, those, could be the, uh, those could be the trends to our mind uh, that we'll invest behind. Awesome. And from a venture backable perspective, which brand outside your portfolio in the last five years has done a great job in your opinion? Um, on the uh, which spaces in the uh, retail or in the uh, CPG space? Let's do one from each. Okay. So I think in the, I think in the retail uh, space outside of our portfolio, uh, one would say that uh, uh, yeah, one would see that uh, Nika has done a good job, right? In the beauty and cosmetic space, it's a perfect example of how uh, you would take on and build an online identity. And, uh, uh, you know, where there's really no reference, there is really no you know, point of view, and you have um, a whole a fragmented market of beauty shops with, you know, promoters and, uh, and, and brand paid promoters and, you know, shop owner trying to suggest you things uh, uh, to a complete online space where there is user engagement, user contributions, user content. And then, uh, you know, now they've uh, obviously uh, learned the art of mixing third party and, uh, you know, private labels, uh, basically drive margins and have their own proprietary d c brands. So that is uh, one, one, one clear, uh, you know, I, I would say a retail, sort of a modern retail brand, which has taken shape. Um, in the uh, CPG space, I would say that uh, uh, I, I greatly regard the work that has been done by uh, the team at Beera. So in an otherwise very sort of monopoly driven market uh, of a Kingfisher and uh, the rest being all, you know, sort of subscale Indian brands and then some foreign brands coming in and a huge price of 
difference in there and and and, and, the, and the urban consumer sort of warming up to a new fresh taste of beer that they wanted and millennials usually reject and, and you know the new generation always rejects what their what their fathers and what their forefathers um, used to drink uh, at least and they want to move towards and gravitate towards new experiences so i think they jumped upon that inside brought about a cool brand and created a new taste and flavor at uh, a very attractive price point which was midway between uh, the local beer brand, which is Kingfisher, and the imported uh, sort of brands uh, like O Garden and, and, and Coronas and the others. So um, I think they created that uh, fresh, cool brand, and um, and then they've uh, really created uh, a space for themselves uh, through some very clever marketing. Lastly, Anoop, what's your advice to startups raising money during this difficult period? Well, um, uh, I think my advice would be that uh, uh, if you want to raise money and uh, if you're an online online business, then it's probably much easier because the due diligence can be done by the investors, uh, you know, sitting from wherever they are and uh, work from home can be aligned. But in case you're an offline online business, probably in the retail space or in the FMCG space, then uh, give yourself some time uh, for fundraising, give some extra time, build some runway. Uh, uh, and probably start some conversations or more, you know, sort of meaty conversations once uh, uh, we see uh, a more uh, greater relaxation of the lockdown restrictions so that people can travel, they can see your stores, they can see your, uh, you know, presence, uh, they can talk to a few consumers, meet them, etc. So I think uh, some of that would be required uh, in some of these spaces. So, yeah, so depending on what kind of business you are. What a superb note to end the podcast on. And hope thank you so much for your time. It's been a very interesting chat. I've learned a great deal about the FMCG and the retail industry from you today. And I'm pretty sure our listeners will appreciate all of the fantastic insights that you've given both from an industry perspective and from an investment lens. Thank you, Akash. Uh, it was great talking to you as well. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It uh, helped me also walk back, you know, <laughs> down the memory lane and, uh, fetch some of those uh, excellent memories that I always held uh, dear to me in terms of my professional career. And I think that was uh, my high point. And of course, uh, if, uh, if your listeners find this to be useful, I'll be very happy to sort of do this again on, a, on any other topic of uh, your choice, their choice. And I look forward to sort of uh, staying connected and uh, working with Scrum Ventures whenever it starts to investing uh, in India. Let's, uh, let's exchange some notes and keep going. Thanks for your wonderful insights, Anoop. I really appreciate all of the points that you made during the episode. We'll bring you back soon to talk about CPG brands and how investments in that category works. If you enjoyed that episode as much as I did, please share the episode with your friends and people who you think might benefit from listening to it. Do also leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast if you already haven't done so, so as to not miss out on any of the upcoming episodes. Stay safe, everyone. We have another interesting guest lined up next week. So make sure you tune back in and listen to that. Until then, keep hustling.